Hello, everyone, and welcome to this latest Regulation Around the World podcast. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge at Norton Rose Fulbright. And in today's podcast, I'm joined by colleagues from around the world who are going to give up their thoughts and insights into what is happening in regulatory terms in their local buy now, pay later market. My first guest is Eamon Moran, Senior Counsel in our New York office, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about developments in the United States, where the buy now, pay later market has seen exponential growth. And in particular, he's going to touch upon a recent report that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, has produced. Eamon, it's great to have you with us. Sure. Thanks, Simon, and good to be with you today. I think at the at the outset, you know, the report signals that we can expect regulatory pressure around certain business practices in the BNPL sector. But at the same time, the report serves as a clear reaffirmation that the BNPL product is here to stay. Credit cards are less popular than they used to be for a variety of reasons, and consumers are increasingly using BNPL for a wider range of products, including for essential purchases. Overall, the report does not seek to determine whether the rise of the BNPL market is a positive or a negative development. The report does identify consumer risks and harms that arise from BNPL products, at least in the CFPB's view, but it does not discuss any actions that the CFPB plans to take based on the report. Those follow-up actions were left for the CFPB director, Rohit Chopra, to preview in his prepared remarks on the report that were released to coincide with the release of the report and also for the CFPB to announce in its press release that also came out on the same day that the report was released about the report. Let's not forget that the report has some key limitations. Buy now, pay later is defined as the pay in four or split pay product, which is a four installment, no interest product, typically with a down payment of 25% and the remaining three installments come due in two week intervals. So the report therefore excludes other forms of short-term purchase financing, such as point of sale, installment loans, and post-purchase credit card installment plans. That being said, while BNPL has been a period of rapid growth, the report also signals how questions have, have arisen recently as to the sustainability of the core buy now, pay later model that is the subject of the report, which is the pay in for no interest product as I alluded to previously. BNPL providers are experiencing declining merchant discount fees, along with rising credit losses and funding costs due to the current state of the economy. Different providers may be responding to these pressures with a combination of the following actions, such as tightening underwriting standards, increasing consumer fee revenues, and or shifting toward acquiring borrowers via their proprietary apps rather than on the websites of retail partners. According to the U.S. Treasury Department's recently released FinTech report that came out last week, there are also some reports of some BNPL providers seeing large decreases to their valuations and funding costs also rising in light of the rising interest rates and concerns about consumer outlook. Thanks, Eamon. Uh, The second question I wanted to ask you is this. In what ways do you think the CFPB may bring credit card-style protections to the buy-now-pay-later sector? Yeah, sure. Great question, Simon. I think this is really what um, a lot of the buzz about the report when it came out in September really focused on. 
because the report itself identifies several places where buy now pay later providers are not providing the same consumer rights and protections with respect to buy now pay later products that credit card companies are required to provide. Based on the report and Director Chopra's accompanying comments, it appears that baseline protections that the CFPB has in mind include certain Regulation Z disclosures. Uh, Regulation Z implements the Truth in Lending Act here in the US, as well as dispute and error resolution procedures and late fee limits. Now understand that many BNPL, BNPL providers are not offering the same clear set of dispute protections that credit card issuers have long been required to offer which can cause issues and complications for some consumers, for example, when they are returning their merchandise or encountering other difficulties. They also, many providers also are not offering clear and comparable disclosures with respect to the terms of the BNPL product, such as other lenders are required to provide that are subject to TILA and Regulation Z. These include the standard cost of credit disclosures or periodic statements, for example. When it comes to credit cards, the CARD Act in the US also requires that lenders ensure that borrowers have the ability to repay their borrowings to avoid overextension and that penalties, penalty fees in particular be reasonable and proportional. So these are among some of the items that have been pointed out and referenced as what's available in the credit card sector that potentially could be implemented in the BNPL sector as a baseline set of standards um, focused on consumer protection. Thanks, Amen. Uh, and as a follow-up question to that, I mean, to what extent do you see buy now, pay later providers already addressing some of the CFPB's concerns in their products and services? Sure, Simon, another great question. I would say the CFPB's report and Director Chopra's accompanying comments lay out a regulatory roadmap for BNPL companies to follow. Now, some companies already are providing disclosures mandated by the Truth and Lending Act slash Regulation Z, and other protections cited by the CFPB as lacking in the broader BNPL industry. At least one major BNPL provider, um, which was the subject and was included in the CFPB's inquiry, um, that was the focus of the report, does say that CFPB oversight is a positive development. In this particular company's view, a fair amount of what the CFPB report has called for, it has already chosen to do, as this company has always seen its product, its buy now, pay later product as a lending activity subject to all the consumer credit rules and regulations here in the US, including on the state side. Other companies that offer buy now, pay later also issue more traditional credit products like longer term installment loans that are subject to various consumer finance laws. So ramping up protections on buy now, pay later products may not be that difficult to the extent they're already not under scope of certain laws and regulations here in the US. Granted, there may be some soul searching within the sector in terms of how individual companies undertake technical efforts and hire compliance workers going forward. Even without CFPB pressure, however, it is my view that many BNPL providers may see updating their consumer protection efforts as good for business as they compete with fintechs and traditional financial firms that offer those protections already. Okay, thanks. Eamon, and just as my final question, um, and I'm just going to draw on your years of experience of advising on buy now, pay later companies. Now, as the buy now, pay later market evolves and the regulatory climate heats up, in your view, how should companies already offering or exploring the service address the issues that need to be tackled? Sure. 
Uh, I think this is really a great final question to wrap up our session here today, Simon, so thank you. The key in my view is really to stay closely attuned to how the regulatory landscape continues to evolve. Understanding when and if the buy now pay later arrangement that a particular company provides falls within or outside of the scope of regulation is key. As buy now pay later products continue to grow in popularity and the industry continues to add products and services to meet consumer need and demand, market participants should ensure that they understand their regulatory obligations and licensing requirements to the extent applicable, know how to navigate the processes and procedures to achieve compliance with the evolving regulatory regimes, and also to develop structures to address any outstanding regulatory risks. Going forward, for example, I do expect to see the CFPB for its part uh, to use a number of tools to oversee the buy now pay later sector, including those that were referenced in Director Chopra's comments that came out in September, as well as the authority to bring claims of unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts and practices, otherwise known as UDAP, U-D-A-A-P as the acronym. A lot of the focus really has been on the CFPB, including in our conversation today, Simon, and that's certainly understandable. But let's also not forget the role of the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC here in the US, which does share enforcement authority with the CFPB. Following the release of the CFPB's report in September, the FTC clarified in the blog post that companies offering buy now pay later products can also be liable under the FTC Act for what they say to consumers, how they convey material information, and how they treat consumers throughout the life cycle of the DNPL transaction. So if your business offers buy now pay later payment options as a retailer or a buy now pay later provider, or if you play a role in the DNPL ecosystem as a marketer, collector, et cetera, remember that basic consumer protection ground rules of the FTC Act may also apply. Some states, for their part, also consider buy now, pay later to be consumer credit here in the US, and such they require state licensing or registration, as well as compliance with state consumer credit laws, while other states do not require such licensing or registration for buy now, pay later products that have no interest or finance charges. For example, the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation, which is California's financial services regulator, has been a leader in the oversight of DNPL products for the past few years, and it's concluded five enforcement actions to date with DNPL providers that clarify the regulator's position that buy now, pay later products are consumer loans, and that companies that offer them must comply with California state lending rules. Now, the recent CFPB and FTC reports and guidance that have come out over the past few months come after state attorneys general here in the US have urged the CFPB for more oversight on buy now, pay later products. It's clear that both US federal and state regulators are paying close attention to the DNPL industry, which indicates that increased scrutiny and regulation are on the horizon going forward. Therefore, companies should adopt a proactive regulatory response based on the guidance that's already been provided to stave off any scrutiny that may come down the road. Thanks, Eamon. That's a, a really comprehensive and helpful answer. Also, as well, thank you for your answers to the earlier questions as well. Very insightful. That concludes the US portion of this podcast. So in the next part, we focus on buy now, pay later in the United Kingdom 
And to guide us through this, I'm delighted to be joined by Matthew Gregory, uh, counsel in our London office. And Matthew, to start with, can you just give us an overview of the current state of play on the regulation of buy now, pay later in the UK? And also, there's reform coming. But what do we know of what that will look like? Yeah, thanks very much, Simon. Uh, you're right. Look, there is a reform afoot, and that's been something of a long burn, actually. I'll go through all of that in a moment and the origins of it. But just setting the scene, in the UK, the, the term buy now, pay later can actually refer to either regulated or unregulated forms of lending. When I talk about regulation, I really mean here in the sense that um, a firm providing that sort of lending would be required to be authorised by the FCA. And that's a, an important point for reasons I'll also come on to in a moment. In broad terms, the way that the regime splits at the moment is through certain exempt agreements provisions in UK legislation. And they provide that where a lender enters into an exempt credit agreement, then it wouldn't need to be authorised by the FCA. I think it is important to just um, pause on that for a moment because there are other forms of regulation in the UK which could apply at the moment to those forms of unregulated buy now, pay later, even if the lender wasn't required to be authorised by the FCA. So one of those is uh, anti-money laundering supervision and registration and compliance with UK money laundering legislation. Another important area is around financial promotions. And then also, there are provisions of the general law, so the Consumer Rights Act 2015 in particular, and also the 2013 Consumer Contracts Regulations, which provide important rights to consumers around cancellation, for example. So just dwelling for a moment on those agreements, which they say are, quote, unregulated, i.e. those which are open through exempt agreements provisions, there are actually two sets of provisions. Uh, one set of provisions deals with what's known as fixed sum credit, and then another which deals with what's known as running account credit. Broadly, fixed sum credit is as the name implies, and running account credit is not fixed sum credit, and is things like um, revolving credit, uh, sorts of credit which is provided often through credit cards and so on. Uh, and in broad terms, those provisions explain that where, so if we deal with um, the provisions for fixed sum credit to begin with, which are the ones which are really in focus of the Treasury's reform to the regulatory uh, landscape for currently unregulated buy now, pay later in the UK, those provisions for fixed sum credit provide that where an agreement is what's known as a borrower-lender-supplier agreement, so that's the type of agreement oftentimes to, um, uh, to provide credit to an individual to purchase goods or services, um, often from a third party, such as a merchant, um, where that credit is to be repaid by the borrower uh, in a term of not more than 12 months, uh, and those, uh, that credit's repaid within a period of 12 months or less. Importantly, the agreement's uh, unsecured and it's provided without interest or other charges. Certain other requirements uh, apply to the credit. So, for example, it's not a conditional sale agreement or a high post agreement. Um, those sorts of credit agreements are capable of, of being treated as exempt agreements. And as I say, they're quite strict criteria. I've gone through some of those. Um, important to go through, obviously, all of them in each case. But that sort of lending is currently unregulated. Um, the FCA, just to say, has been active even re with respect to those lenders which uh, it doesn't directly supervise uh, as authorised firms. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago provisions under the Consumer Rights Act, for example. Uh, the FCA has used powers that it has under that legislation uh, in order to encourage 
quote, unregulated providers of, of BMPL to change their terms. So I uh, found that some of the terms in those customer contracts are potentially unfair and so on. So when we talk about unregulated uh, BMPL in the UK, just important to bear in mind that it's it's quite a specific subset of, of the overall consumer lending landscape. Um, and also there are lots of other areas of regulation in the UK which could apply, just that lenders uh, in strict terms might not need to be authorised by the FCA in order to enter into those types of credit agreements. Um, so Simon, you mentioned that reform is coming and that's absolutely right. Listeners won't be surprised to hear what that's aimed at or driving at. It's for those types of currently unregulated BMPL agreements that I mentioned a moment ago. I'll come on to talk about this uh, in a little moment, but effectively the Treasury uh, have been trying to work through the use cases in the sector of those legislative provisions in order to understand where to draw the new regulatory framework for currently unregulated BNPL. And the origins of all of that really are in a, a review carried out by the former interim CEO of the FCA, Chris Woolard, a couple of years ago, which was into innovation and change in the unsecured credit market in the UK. And one of the principal conclusions from that was that there was evidence of potential harm for customers, for consumers, arising out of the unregulated BNPL market. The market in the UK, the use of, of these types of uh, credit arrangements by consumers shot up during the pandemic as more and more customers uh, utilise these provisions, these credit provisions in order to uh, purchase goods and services online. So all sat at home. Um, and at the time, there was an exchange of letters between John Glenn, who was the Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury here, um, with Christopher Woolard in connection with that review, where the government committed to take forward the recommendation around um, a new proportionate regulatory framework for what is, as I say, currently unregulated BMPL. And so we're in the process of that, that journey uh, to, uh, to draw that regulatory perimeter around parts of the unregulated BMPL sector. Um, and the Treasury have identified broadly uh, two categories of unregulated lending under these provisions and currently grappling with exactly where to draw the scope of regulation around them, as I mentioned. So the first category from its consultation papers is, is what it refers to as BMPL. And the Treasury uses that term to refer to forms of credit which are usually taken out online, where customers have an overarching relationship with a third party lender and under which multiple low value agreements are made with little transactional friction as a result. The second category is what the Treasury have come to term short-term interest-free credit. And that's frequently offered in-store with customers taking out a single higher value discrete agreement with a credit provider who might be a third party lender or maybe the merchant itself. Uh, and the government thought that it also might be used to, to finance subscriptions such as gym, club memberships and, and season tickets and so on. The Treasury's view initially was that this new regulatory framework would only cover BMPL, so not STIFC, short-term industry credit, but actually in its uh, later consultation paper, following um, its review of responses to its earlier consultation paper, it became clear that there were some real challenges scoping regulation around these particular terms. And ultimately the treasuries concluded that the scope of regulation should include not just the BMPL I mentioned, only, uh, I mentioned earlier, but also um, short-term interest-free credit or certain forms of short-term interest-free credit. And, th and the reasons for that really were that effectively there are some striking similarities in the use case of the MPL and, and what the Treasury termed STIFC. Um, and therefore there needed to be a cons consistent approach to both. Um, potential future development of these two markets further sort of blurred the boundaries between them. 
and obviously regulation needs to preempt developments in order to, to sort of future-proof it and be fit for purpose. And, and the diminishing distinction between BNPL and short-term interest free credit increases the need for consumer clarity on the rights and protections that they can expect. So the seemingly settled policy position is that scope of regulation will be drawn around BNPL and short-term interest free credit in circumstances where it's provided either by a third-party lender or where it's provided by a merchant online or otherwise at a distance. And, so, and it, I should also say that in addition um, to sort of carving the perimeter in this way, so as to define these types of credit arrangements as in scope of the new framework when that comes to take effect likely sometime uh, next year. Um, the Treasury also very clear as to the type of agreements which would fall outside of scope. So things like invoicing, by which I think Treasury means short-term invoicing, which facilitates trade in the usual way, interest-free agreements which finance contracts of insurance and uh, charge cards and so on, um, as well as trade credit and employer and employee lending. All of those examples of, of types of lending which the Treasury is minded to keep outside scope of this new regulatory framework going forwards. Thanks, Matthew. Uh, lots going on. I, I just want to, just thinking forward now, I mean, how will this all affect merchants and lenders? I think ultimately what it's going to mean for lenders uh, who are currently unauthorised by the FCA and who provide either BNPL or short-term interest-free credit, so that could be also merchants for the reasons I just mentioned, they're likely to need to become authorised by the FCA. The detail of the actual regulatory framework for those uh, institutions is still to be drawn. Clearly, there's a very strong role for the FCA as the supervisor uh, who will develop the specific rules around that. There are some important um, collateral consequences of becoming authorised and providing a form of regulated agreement, which is around the application of the Consumer Credit Act 1974, which again uh, is likely to be nuanced in some way. And in fact, uh, we very recently had a, a consultation paper from HM Treasury on general reform to the CCA. So these things I think likely to tie together over the coming year. For merchants, if, if their role is only as a credit broker, then Treasury have been pretty clear they intend to ensure that merchants in that capacity only won't be drawn within scope of the new regulatory framework going forward. So it might be possible for them to continue uh, in an unauthorized way. All of this, of course, dependent on the precise terms of the credit agreement. Lots of uh, merchants in the UK are authorised as credit brokers, um, often as a type of limited commission credit broker. If they are um, effectively selling credit alongside their goods or services, and that credit is not an exempt agreement, so a form of regulated credit agreement. So um, I think this kind of structural change in the market will really depend on whether or not that merchant is, is Kind of unregulated at the moment. If so, it might be possible to continue in an unregulated way, but certainly significant impacts for those currently unauthorised BNPL providers as, as lenders, and also potentially for some merchants as well, uh, where they're providing STIFC. Okay, and as my final question, um, what can we expect in terms of FCA regulation when it arrives? Yeah, well, a really good question, and I'm sure that's what um, most listeners will be most concerned with. I think Treasury intending, as they say, to put in place a proportionate regulatory framework. But what I'd say is that things have developed, I suppose, since the response consultation was published, both in terms of the macroeconomic climate over the course of the last six months or so, and also in terms of the way that the FCA, FCA's own regulatory regimes have developed. So the FCA, for example, publishes a, a financial lives survey annually, and in this year's report, 
uh, published a couple of months ago, it identified that almost a quarter of all UK adults, so that's 12.9 million UK adults, have low financial resilience. And the main reason for that, in the SEA's view from its data, was actually um, an increase in the proportion of adults who said they were heavily burdened by domestic bills and credit commitments. And that theme of onerous credit commitments is, is one um, throughout the financial life survey. And clearly in the UK, consumers in a cost of living crisis at the moment, which is expected to continue well into the next year. So I think we've got these developments on, on the one hand, um, we've also got other uh, aspects of development in the FCA's regulatory framework, like the new consumer duty. And so I think you know, the extent to which this is, quote, a proportionate regulatory framework will need to be reactive to all of those sorts of things. I do think, um, you know, the signs are there pretty clearly that there will be a proportionate application of the Consumer Credit Act, uh, potentially to relieve some of the more um, challenging aspects of the, the CCA for, for lenders or to modify them in, in some ways. Also, um, we're likely to see some possible intervention uh, in connection with credit reporting. It very much depends where industry gets to at that. That's clear from the Trinity's paper, sort of uh, waiting to see where industry gets to, I think, first. Um, but, but that, you know, it's, um, it's an important area for a lot of lenders too. Thanks, Matthew. Very interesting times ahead of us. Uh, that concludes the UK section of this podcast. Thanks again, Matthew. Thanks, Simon. So in this section of the podcast, we move to Australia, where I'm delighted to be joined by James Morris, a financial services partner in our Sydney office. And James, to begin with, um, there's been a lot going on in Australia. In particular, the Australian government has just issued a consultation paper on buy now, pay later. What, what's the government's rationale for issuing this paper? Good day, good day, Simon. Uh, very good to uh, to speak to you. Look, the, the rationale in, in many respects is very simple. Uh, at present, buy now, pay later arrangements fall outside of uh, what we consider traditional consumer credit laws in Australia. This being a, a relatively consistent theme uh, across other major financial centres such as uh, the UK uh, and uh, for us across the pond in, uh, in New Zealand. So what the Australian government is proposing to do is to ensure that new and emerging credit products such as buy now, pay later, uh, are subject to appropriate regulation that balances consumer protection while still encouraging innovation in our financial services industry. This uh, in turn reflects the premise that safe and well-regulated markets for consumer credit products are necessary for an efficient financial system. Okay, thanks, James. Now, the Australian government's consultation paper sets out a number of options. Uh, can you just briefly take us through these? Sure. So basically, there are there are three broad options, uh, varying levels of, uh, of regulatory intervention that have been proposed. Uh, the first option uh, involves strengthening uh, our voluntary uh, buy now pay later industry code, uh, combined with uh, an affordability test. So cutting it down, this option will essentially impose a bespoke affordability assessment for buy now pay later providers under the Credit Act which is the National Consumer Credit Protection Act, uh, and address any other regulatory gaps in, in what is really a strengthened industry code, I aim to make it fit for purpose. There'll be no specific requirements on buy now, pay later providers to check that a buy now, pay later product is not unaffordable for a person before offering it to them. This being uh, assessed on a scalable 
basis. So under this option, it's important to note this, there would be no requirement to obtain and maintain an Australian credit licence, which is uh, is something of concern to, uh, to buy now pay later providers. So that's the first option. Option two, alternatively, involves a limited form of buy now pay later regulation under the Credit Act. This approach would essentially require buy now pay later providers to obtain and maintain an Australian credit licence different from, from option one plus introduce modified responsible lending obligations under the Credit Act to determine unsuitability, combined again with a strengthened industry code. The provisions could be calibrated to the level of risk of buy now pay later products and services. This could include, for example, exemptions from reference checking and other obligations that don't necessarily relate to issues identified in buy now pay later business practices. So they're the first two options. The third option, regulation essentially entirely of buy now pay later products under the Credit Act with full responsible lending obligations. Under this option, buy now pay later providers would need to obtain and maintain an Australian credit license. The existing responsible lending obligations in the Credit Act would be applied to all buy now pay later credit, including requirements around reasonable inquiries into a consumer's financial situation and taking reasonable steps to verify this information. Thanks, James. Lots to look out for there. Um, as my third and final question, I just want to pick up on another key part of the buy now, pay later regulatory landscape, which is, of course, the Corporations Act 2001. Now, ASIC has shifted its focus from facilitating implementation to active supervision enforcement. Now, with this in mind, in your view, what are some of the key things that by now pay later firms need to keep in mind to ensure that they comply with the requirements? So it's not, not an unusual position for our regulator to take currently in the market. Uh, and that shift in focus that you refer to is, is really in respect of ASIC's uh, design and distribution obligations or, or DDO. Uh, that regime reflects what is really a fundamental change in how we regulate financial product design and distribution. Selling products now requires really clear consideration of the objectives, financial situation and needs of the consumers being targeted, important in the context of, of buy now, pay later products. So really at its essence, DDO is about protecting consumers' interests and reducing the risk of harm caused by poor design, distribution and marketing. These obligations became law in October 2021, and ASIC has stated, as, as you have referred to, that its focus is now shifting from facilitating implementation of that regime to active supervision and enforcement. So if we look at, at what those obligations require, they require buy now pay later firms to be proactive, particularly when determining a target market for each of their products and taking reasonable steps to ensure that each product is distributed to its target market. So ASIC has stated that it's reviewing product governance arrangements in the buy now pay later space. It's looking at how target market determinations were developed, including the data metrics and other key considerations that underpin these public documents. So the words of ASIC, and, and this is something that I think that buy now pay later firms should really take note of, it's intending to look very closely at the way firms collect, assess and respond to data about consumer outcomes from their products. The regulator believes it's critical that firms respond to poor outcomes where they're identified by making the necessary changes to either their products 
or their product governance arrangements to address those shortcomings. Thanks, James. That's really helpful. That concludes the Australian section.